cold of silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on March the 4th, 2009. I always advise newcomers to look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and you can download lots of previous talks I've given. I say this every night because there are people who call me up and ask me questions about certain things, and if they listen to my previous talks or went into the archives, they've generally found that I've covered the topic so we can download to your heart's content. Also, we can tell Alan Watt Sentinel, sentinel.eu for transcripts of these talks, which you can print up and pass around to your friends who are written in the various languages of Europe. And for those who want to buy my material and keep me going, because it is up to you, you can find it at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. You can also donate if, if you want to as well. There's buttons on the website. Everyone's been watching the, the pantomimes, I call them pantomimes, when visitors from other countries, the presidents and prime ministers, meet together with all the pomp and circumstance of kings and queens of bygone days. Nothing much changes. It wouldn't matter if Rome was literally burning. They'd have to have a party and, and lay it on as they congratulate each other. It's like the Oscars. That's why I really compare them to the prime ministers and presidents and standing ovations and all the rest of it. It's very much like the Oscars. And it makes you wonder if they live in a different fantasy than the rest of us. And we are in a fantasy. It's been designed for us. But what kind of fantasy do these people live in to, to, to preside over and, and, and sink the countries and further sink the countries with further plans to do just that? And then they have a massive gala, basically, to applaud and congratulate themselves. It's rather astonishing. And I'll be touching on that later in the show. It all falls in, as I say, with the psychopathic personalities. They get picked by higher authorities, and, and not the people, of course, to become the prime ministers and presidents. It's odd that Mr. Brown of Britain was a Chancellor of the Exchequer for about nine years, a career politician, and he was supposed to be in charge of watching over the major banks of London. He said, apparently, that he's unrepentant for anything that he's done. He probably has no repentance because it was all planned this way. That's why there's no repentance. But they've got big plans for us, very big plans. But, you know, this winter has been one of the harshest winters all over in many years. And I've said before, it doesn't matter about the evidence being or pointing to cooling. The agenda will go forward regardless if we're up to our necks in snow. They'll still say it's global warming because this is the big stick to get us all to live in a new system 
it's an excuse in a sense, but it's also a way to get the global taxes coming into the United Nations. They've talked about this for years with their carbon taxes and all the rest of it, and they hope to highly profit, profit from the whole thing and then start dictating to the peoples of the world. And that's what the United Nations is really set up to do eventually, is to dictate to all the different peoples of the world on every aspect of their lives. And if you want to know what aspects I'm talking about, look into the different departments at the United Nations. They have an equivalent department for everyone that you have in your federal government and more. I'll be back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix. And just before the break there, I was mentioning the fact that this winter has been one of the most severe winters across a good part of the Western Hemisphere for an awful long time. An awful long time. And just last Friday, here where I am, there was about 12 inches, 14 inches of snow overnight with five foot drifts that covered everything, even cars and everything. And there's more snow to come, and this is March. But regardless of the facts, as I say, this agenda will go on, and it'll be led by the cheerleaders, the ones I just mentioned that go to these big international galas and give themselves a sort of political Oscar awards, because that's the agenda, and they don't change their agenda regardless of the facts. But here's an article exposing some of this, and it's good to see websites going up to do with exposing the global warming and other ones as well going up to cover the aerial spraying we've had constantly since 1998, at least in Canada, although they were testing long before that. But this is uh, from the hot joints, it's called. January 28, 2009, global warming alarmist James Hansen's former NASA supervisor calls him an embarrassment is the guy who really kick-started the fraudulent global warming panic around the world is Dr. James Hansen. He's Al Gore's closest ally and deputy fearmonger. Hansen is the chief climate scientist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Hansen's former boss at NASA is now speaking out and says Hansen's global warming alarmism is an embarrassment to NASA based on fraudulent science. Retired senior NASA atmospheric scientist Dr. John S. Theon, the former supervisor of James Hansen, NASA's vocal man-made global warming fear soothsayer, has now publicly declared himself a skeptic and declared that Hansen embarrassed NASA with his alarming climate claims and said Hansen was never muzzled. Well, of course not, because he's been given the go-ahead to keep howling. It says... Theon joins the rapidly growing ranks of international scientists abandoning the promotion of man-made global warming fears. I appreciate the opportunity to add my name to those who disagree that global warming is man-made, Theon wrote to the Minority Office of Environment and Public Works Committee on January 15, 2009. I was, in effect, Hansen's supervisor because I had to justify his funding 
allocate his resources and evaluate his results. And this is what Theon explained. See, he was a former chief of the Climate Processes Research Program at NASA headquarters and former chief of the Atmospheric Dynamics and Radiation Branch. That's what he said. Hansen was never muzzled, even though he violated NASA's official agency position on climate forecasting. That is, we did not know enough to forecast climate change or mankind's effect on it. Hansen thus embarrassed NASA by coming out with his claims of global warming beginning in 1988 in his testimony before Congress, Theon wrote. Says note, note, NASA scientist James Hansen has created worldwide media frenzy with his dire climate warning, warming, his call for trials against those who dissent against the man-made global warming. Can you believe that? This guy actually wants people tried like Holocaust denial, if you deny there's a, a warming going on caused by man. And his, and his claims that he was allegedly muzzled by the Bush administration despite doing 1,400 on-the-job media interviews, well, some muzzling that was, wasn't it? He and his good company when it comes to skepticism on global warming, contrary to what Al Gore is telling the Congress in Capitol Hill this very day, the scientific community is in no way in agreement about global warming. In fact, every single day more scientists come forward and join the chorus of those who know Gore and Hansen are liars engaged in one of the biggest cons of all time. As chief of several NASA headquarters programs from 82 to 94, an SES position, I was responsible for all weather and climate research in the entire agency, including the research work by James Hansen, Roy Spencer, Joanne Simpson, and several hundred other scientists at NASA field centers in academia and in the private sector who worked in climate research, Theon wrote of his career. This required a thorough understanding of the state of the science. I've kept up with climate science since their time by reading books and journal articles. Theon added, Theon also quoted the book Advances in Remote Sensing Retrieval Methods. It says here, but anyway, I'll, I'll actually put the, the link up at the end of the show. It's so, it's so huge, all the different people he mentions, that he's worked with all the different scientists and physicists, etc., over his span in NASA. But there you go. There's another one come out at the top. They're crying it and they're crying those who are crying wolf. But then again, to say facts won't matter because there's a bigger, bigger agenda in the works and it wouldn't matter as I say if you're up to your neck and snow they're going to keep going on about global warming because it's a must be it's a must be planned long ago remember the Club of Rome wrote about it the founders of the Club of Rome wrote a book called The First Global Revolution and their job was to dream up ways to unite the whole planet against a common enemy and they dreamed up and put it in their book after looking at all the possibilities the idea of global warming, that would fit the bill. That's what they said in the book. This is from Harper's Magazine. It's, it's called George W. Bush's Disposable Constitution, March the 3rd, 2009, by Scott Horton. Yesterday, the Obama administration released a series of nine previously secret legal opinions crafted by the Office of Legal Counsel, to enhance the presidential powers of George W. Bush. Perhaps the most astonishing of these memos was one crafted by University of California Berkeley Law, 
Professor John Yu. Well, he's been mentioned before in the Patriot circles because we're always way ahead of everybody else anyway. He concluded that in wartime the president was freed from the constraints of the Bill of Rights with respect to anything he chose to label as a counter-terrorism operation inside the United States. And from the New York Times summary, Neil Lewis said this about the same thing. The law has recognized that force, including deadly force, may be legitimately used in self-defense. Mr. Yu and Mr. Delahunty wrote to Mr. Gonzalez. Therefore, any objections based on the Fourth Amendment's ban on unreasonable searches are swept away, he said, since any possible privacy offense resulting from such a search is a lesser matter than any injury from deadly force. The October 23rd memorandum also said the First Amendment speech and press rights may also be subordinated to the overriding need to wage war successfully. In other words, uh, media is to be used for full propaganda purposes, which it always is anyway. It added that the current campaign against terrorism may require even broader exercises of federal power domestically. It's funny that this is the mainstream media putting this out now. But as I say, uh, there's other articles I, I and other people have read uh, a, a few years ago talking about Mr. Yu, who drafted up this whole deal. John Yu's constitution is unlike any other I have ever seen. It seems to consist of one clause, appointing the president as commander-in-chief. The rest of the constitution was apparently printed in disappearing ink. This is from Harper's Magazine. We need to know how the memo was used. Bradbury suggests it was not much relied upon. I don't believe that for a second. Moreover, Bradbury's decision to wait to the very end before repealing it suggests that someone in the Bush hierarchy was keen on having it. Quite something, isn't it? And also put these links up, this link up on the site too, at the end of the show. But getting back to pageantry and how the, the little psychopaths down through the ages love their triumphs and their parades and red carpets and red carpet, remember too, is a symbol of the sun, sun's path as it goes across the sky. So those holy ones, the ones who are equal with the sun tread on the red carpet. That's what it's all about. Very, very ancient, you know. And they're still doing it right in front of our eyes as they collapse the economy. Probably a brand new carpet as well. Paid for by the taxpayer. This is from the Mail Online. To do with Gordon Brown matches Tony Blair's standing ovations from Congress as he urges U.S. to halt hurricane off recession by Benedict Brogan, and this is March the 4th today. Brown showered praise on America, describing it as an inspiration. He called on the world to work together to create a new deal. Remember New Deal? The New Deal that FDR brought in in the Depression. We should take the New Deal. It's a new deal, literally. is a new legal system. It means any other constitution is going to be overthrown here. And it's in the New Deal is supposedly, supposedly for global prosperity. Well, for whom? The PM confirmed that Senator Ted Kennedy will receive an honorary knighthood. Isn't that nice? Isn't that awful nice? It's in the Constitution they're not supposed to take any knighthoods from any foreign powers. But oh, who cares about that, eh? They've been doing it for the last 30 years. He also urged world leaders to come together to combat climate change. Here you go. 
poverty and extremism. Climate change, poverty and extremism. I think their whole climate thing is rather extreme myself. Maybe that should be combated, the whole idea of it. And they've had wars on poverty for as long as I can remember. And the money that's supposed to go to poverty, especially abroad, just never seemed to arrive at its intended destination. Or, let's rephrase that, maybe it does arrive, but it's always in a predetermined destination, someone's pocket or some big international corporation. That's generally how it stands. I'm going to be back with more on this farce of the political Oscars as I come back after the break. Thatcher 
hardly referred to it. The assembled senators and congressmen rewarded him with a total of 19 standing ovations, matching the number won by Tony Blair. It's, it's like a tennis match, isn't it? This is, this is the Oscars right here. How many points they got? How many standing ovations they got? Matching the number won by Tony Blair in July 2003 when he addressed the Congress after the invasion of Iraq. <laughs> Speaking under the iconic dome on Capitol Hill, he won repeat standing ovations with an emotive appeal for America to demonstrate its faith in the future by helping rebuild the global economy with a partnership for prosperity. Well, isn't that what we've got with the American Union? We call it Partnership for Prosperity. It is for a few, mind you. He used his speech to senators and congressmen to issue a rallying cry for international cooperation in the face of accelerating world downturn. It's a depression. It's a depression. If the, if the world downturns any further, we'll be spinning off through the solar system somewhere else. Mr. Brown endorsed Barack Obama's 500 billion pounds economic recovery plan and called for matching pledges from other countries in next month's crucial G20 summit in London. That's where they're going to have the riots, which is, is all part of the game, isn't it? It's all arranged. But it's quite amazing, as I say. It's quite amazing to, to see them literally have these Oscars, Oscars for politicians, so they can all applaud themselves and give each other awards and knighthoods and things like that. It's all very pleasant at the top, isn't it? This is from the Globe and Mail, their report on the same thing, Canada. And from the report on business section, it says, Brown urges U.S. to lead the world out of economic hurricane by Desmond Butler, March the 4th. British Prime Minister Gordon Brown said Wednesday an economic hurricane has swept the world and U.S. leaders shouldn't view the crisis as limited to America's borders. In a formal address to a joint meeting of Congress, Mr. Brown said that U.S.-European relations were at an all-time high. Did you know that? The relations were at an all-time high. You know, the people in Britain and, and America are never asked their opinion on anything to do with this, but they love to use these sort of terms. Britain has agreed and America has agreed and and all that kind of stuff. So we're at an all-time high in our relations. He warned that protectionism ultimately makes every nation vulnerable because a bad... <laughs> this is the guy who was in charge of looking overseeing banks. A bad bank anywhere is a threat to good banks everywhere. This is the guy who said he was unrepentant for his time as Chancellor of the Exchequer when he didn't see any of this coming. No matter where it starts, an economic crisis does not stop at the water's edge. Now, this is, this is their best scriptwriter who's written a speech here. Uh, that's the guy who should be getting the Oscar at this award here. Maybe he'll get a knighthood for this one. So the crisis doesn't stop at the water's edge. Isn't that very poetic? He told lawmakers guard in the cavernous house, I should put carnivorous house chamber, but it says cavernous here. It ripples across the world, declared Mr. Brown. The ripples, you see, this water's edge and rippling. This, this is a very poetic, isn't it? Sort of runs off you like well water. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
Daimler and Watt were cutting through the matrix. And just going over the heads of state love-in that they're, they're having in Washington, D.C., to do with the Prime Minister of Britain talking to the U.S. Congress and members of the Senate. Although he's just reading a script, as I say, I'd like to know the scriptwriter. He should get the award because it's, it's better than most, actually. But to continue this last little bit before I go to callers, he says, his remarks come as he's looking for a boost to his own political fortunes. I think he's made enough of a fortune. In hard political times at home, he hopes to benefit from Britain's high regard for President Barack Obama. We don't even know the man, except what they say in the glossy magazines. And to demonstrate British leadership at a time of economic uncertainty. No kidding. As I say, a guy who didn't know there was going to be a crash coming, overseeing the banks and dealing with the British Treasury for nine years. Does that give you any confidence at all? Mr. Brown repeatedly spoke of Americans' optimism in the face of tough times with nods to President Franklin D. Roosevelt and President Ronald Reagan, as well as Mr. Obama. He referenced President George Bush only once, briefly referring to Bush's work on Middle East peace talks. So, it's, as I say, it's really interesting to, to read these little articles here about what they're up to and what they're doing and how these little love-ins amongst themselves. But what's also interesting, too, is, and someone wrote me this today, if we can find it. It's, yeah, it's right there. It says here, it can't be by chance, it's an email I got, the Prime Minister of Gordon Brown's address to U.S. Congress. It just happens to be on the 76th anniversary of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first inaugural address on March the 4th, 1933. FDR's address essentially announced the bankruptcy of the U.S., a declaration of war against the economic emergency, and the beginning of FDR's virtual dictatorship under war and emergency powers. And it's true enough, they love, they love to have these sequences and these, these dates, you know. It's ritual with them. It's also a little joke on the public, I'm sure. Now, we'll go to Mike from New York on the, on the phone. You there, Mike? Sure. Uh, good evening, Alan. Hello. Alan, it's a, it is quite astounding how Gordon Brown can think he's in the least bit qualified to lecture the world on how to extricate itself from a global economic morass, given that the country, the UK, that he is responsible for is going to hell in an mm -hmm. economic basket yep. and is also the poster boy for the cosy relationship between corrupt banks and uh, government right. agencies, mm -hmm. which was instrumental in bringing about the crisis in the first place. That's right. I mean, uh, Brown worked with the big banking boys for nine years. Absolutely. The FDR was the same. He was put in by the banking boys yeah. for that depression. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, all UK banks are basically insolvent in no short measure due to his policies, as you say, yeah. as Chancellor of the Exchequer for nine or ten years. Mm -hmm. That's the Secretary of the Treasury in the US. Right. <laughs> and, I mean... Uh, not to put sort of too fine a point on it, but th this is like the local arsonist, um, you know, pretending he's an authority on fire safety. Exactly. You know? Exactly, yeah, I know. And also, also uh, not to mention the fact that as a Chancellor of the Exchequer, 
he sold off Britain's gold reserve mm -hmm. uh, to his pals, no doubt, because uh, nobody knows who received that at yeah. the bottom of the gold market for $200 in change, and it's now about four times that. That's right. That, that, that's quite right. The thing is, too, in the British system, in the Commonwealth system, too, you have crown corporations. And it's yeah. the thing. No one can figure out what they are because they won't tell us, except that a few people are allowed shares in them, but they're never advertised to the public. Exactly. And yeah. the City of London is an, independent, is an independent entity, right? That's right. It's a sovereign entity. So, you know, it's like the Vatican in the UK. So, you know, you have no idea what machinations are going on there anyway. That's right. So, um, the final point about this new deal, okay, he talks about a new deal, uh, sort of implicitly assuming, of course, that it was the, the original new deal that extricated the U.S. at least out of the Depression, which is very highly questionable, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. So, the, this guy is completely full of you-know-what. Yes, oh yeah, but they want, see what the New Deal really is, that we're all international, and the advising think tanks to Brown have told them that, yeah, that yeah. But, to keep pushing this international global system. But how this guy can lecture the world with a straight mm -hmm. face is, yeah. is, is uh, quite astonishing. It's, it is astonishing. These guys literally um, are, are psychopathic in nature. They could be caught red-handed doing something, and they wouldn't even blink at the camera. Well, he's being caught red-handed wrecking the economy of the UK, and now yep. he has the temerity to lecture. <laughs> you know. I know. I mean, you know. Um, it, is, it, it, it leaves you speechless, doesn't it? Well, this guy is not in the least bit qualified. He's been a hack politician all of his life. He's mm -hmm. never had a real job. Yep. And now he somehow thinks he, he can, uh, you know, dictate the world on a solution. Oh, a power goes to their heads very quickly. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, Alan, thank you, sir. Thanks for calling. Bye. Have a good Anthony there? Yes. Yeah, okay. This is Anthony? Yes. How are you doing, Alan? I'm hanging in here. <laughs> hey, man. I'm 24 years old, a young black male from Hartford, Connecticut. Pretty much grew up in suburbia all my life. And I just got to say, man, compared to you guys and Alex Jones, you guys are the only ones that are really bringing the truth out there. So I really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you for saying so. You do know they're putting bills forward, though, on talk radio to curtail certain types of speech. Yes, and, and it's uh, very scary. That's why I'm donating um, coming up this Friday to try and get your books to try and be as knowledgeable as possible about what's really going on because, you know, I just remember growing up in school and, you know, they had the normal indoctrination with, along with television. And I grew up in one of those liberal towns where it was a predominantly Jewish society, but, you know, they always tried to keep the open side of everyone's opinion going. But... It was pretty straight line, you know, support, you know, the Jewish-related um, industries within America and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I had one specific question for you, sir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I have a friend that is, like, you know, awake for all intents and purposes, but he's kind of enveloped in this whole Jewish conspiracy. Uh -huh. um, what would you say would be the best way to try and get him off that, 
you know, even with the things that I'm telling them that you explained about, you know, the esoteric and, you know, the Rockefellers and, and, and all those J.P. Morgan guys, he yeah. still somehow just reduces it to Jew, Jew, Jew. Yeah, and it's, it's, something it's so, like, it's so you know, easy. It's so easy. Um, and uh, it's so easy to get a, an obvious target. And they do put a lot of, uh, there's no doubt about it, the, the, there's a, too many, obviously too many of a minority group at the top of politics in the U.S. and some other countries, but they're put there on purpose to take the heat. And, of course, you get the impression they're all running the country. They still do what they're told by a hierarchy above them. But when you go into the writings of Professor Carl Quigley, I mean, he'll trace it back in the Anglo-American establishment and go back a few hundred years to show you that the very, very wealthy people in, in Britain who ran the empire uh, basically still run it today. And, and very few of them, very few, a tiny minority, are actually Jewish in origin. And um, I just want to ask one last question. In the terms of eugenics, mm -hmm. does that play a role with, even if it's a nation with, say, um, Moorish people or black people? Yeah. For instance, uh, John Hansen was one of the first presidents of the United States. Mm -hmm. Do you think eugenics would play a role in, even though they're black or Asian, mm -hmm. that they would have good genes to join this so-called elite um, hereditary? Yeah, they have a very odd system. It's based on incredible genealogies. And um, at one time, too, the high lodges all had brothels attached to them. I don't know if people realize that. You'll find it in the Masonic writings, and I mentioned the other night about Benjamin Franklin belonging to the Hellfire Club of Dashwood, and they had, it wasn't just an ordinary brothel, the women there were of particular noble-type birth, they were carriers of these genes, and the, the, the greatest reward you could have was to mate with them uh, in, um, in the hope you'd have an offspring that would be superior. So you, the male, uh, gaining honors in life and stature, would, would breed with a, a woman who was a carrier of a certain type of gene, and the offspring, therefore, was what was sought after. And that is a, a thing that's been practiced uh, down through the ages. Um, and it doesn't matter what color you are at all. In fact, Galton Darwin and others uh, talked about this, so did H.G. Wells. Uh, they said that the existing hierarchies in all nations, that includes Japan and China, have proven, those dynasties have proven their worth to survive and survival of the fittest because they're still running their countries, they still have the majority of the wealth, they haven't lost it through bad offspring squandering it, therefore they've proven their rights to go on into the new system. Well, I just got to say, everybody, please donate to Alan Watt. It, if you are into Alex Jones and it's too much for you, Alan Watt can bring you back down to earth. And, you know, uh, I'm 24 years old, sir, and I got to say, you know, for most people my generation, they got to learn how to read. Yes, and you're understand right. the legalese before even trying to comprehend somebody like you. But, you know, I, I try my best to wake my friends up using your work and specifically your work and Alex Jones' work. So just mm -hmm. thank you very much and keep going, man. Uh, but thanks for calling. Yeah. Thanks for calling. It's, uh, it is amazing. As I say, some people will pick certain targets and stick to it. Other ones literally think it's just the Catholic Church and, and so on and so on. 
but you have to go into the history books to get that, that bigger story. You also read to, need to read books uh, and speeches made by uh, famous people like Einstein to understand what he meant by Zionism because he does explain it and it was to be a world system based exactly uh, as, as uh, Aldo Huxley and, Ju- and his, his brother Julian Huxley said a world system based with scientists at the top and logic ruling the world but, but literally the enemy would be emotion that would be their, uh, that would be their enemy so uh, that still holds true today it isn't there's different meanings of words, and you have to go to the higher meanings. And, you, and the only way you'll find it is to go in to some of the big players. Einstein, for instance, gave more, more political speeches than he did uh, about science. It's all to do with world politics, especially uh, right after and during World War II. Very, very open about it. Now, <clears throat> is, uh, is Ralph from the UK still there? Hello? Is that Ralph? Yes, Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I do. Uh, well, first, um, I really appreciate your insight and humour. The way you're reading out uh, Riley, that stuff from our unelected premier, who was fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm quite uh, solution focused, so I was. I've got three questions, but I don't know if we can go answering them. Um, first, I was interested in what you thought of G. Edward Griffin's Freedom Force. I haven't looked into his his freedom force, but I I know of him. I know of him, yeah. I was sort of talking about um, uh, people with leadership capabilities, networking, and uh, cross-seminating ideas between other groups. It's quite interesting. Uh, If you don't know about that, what about, um, uh, as opposed to a debt-based monetary system, rather a credit-based, which, for instance, Lyndon LaRouche has espoused, uh, I, I tell you, to be honest with you, it wouldn't matter in a money system unless the people themselves, uh, for instance, this is what uh, Jackson, the president of the U.S., once wanted. He wanted a civilian oversight committee that would be drawn from amongst the ordinary people that would not have lifetime jobs overseeing. They'd be there for maybe two or three years watching and taking notes and making available to the public everything that was going on to do with money. If you don't have that, I don't care who gets in. Uh, the, 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 the psychos get in there, and, and they'll, they'll rob you blind. And they bring their lawyers in, too, to complicate things until the average person can understand it. Money is very simple. And unless something is made to be very simply understood by everybody on the planet, then it's a con that's going on. It's like your tax return. You shouldn't have to take your tax return to an expert. It should be very, very simple. In fact, you shouldn't be doing it in the first place because taxation is slavery. Yeah, and why, would she, why, why should we have to obey laws we can't understand? Exactly. Exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the government say that they're there to serve us, but, but that's, a, that's never been the case at all. Um, they're there to serve themselves and those in power, those, those who are the elites. I notice that the major contracts in the UK and across Europe right now for the, the most uh, advanced cameras, uh, it's, it's all by the military-industrial complex. They're, they're now looking at a world, a post-war world, when they've got the global system in place, and, and so therefore all their technologies will be transferred into watching the public and monitoring the public. And, uh, I agree what I term the prison-industrial complex. Yes, it's incredible. It's one of the biggest growth industries. And again, it's a slavery system because they make them work to produce items that are then sold outside the prisons. 
It's no different than China. But then again, China, remember, under the United Nations, and I've, I've quoted it before, they said that that is the model state for the world. Hmm. Yeah. The third question, I don't know whether you want to address this, but you seem to have had quite a rich life with interesting experiences, and you've mentioned something along these lines before. But I'd be interested to know if you could uh, reminisce about what experience you've had that most demonstrated there was something beyond uh, what's dreamt of in our philosophy, if you like, beyond physics, beyond something supernatural. Particularly. Yes. I always, I always say to people that you have to go back into your own life and you'll find, I think most people will find it, if they can remember when they're youngsters, um, uh, it's more than synchronicity when you start talking about the same things at exactly the same time or you start singing the songs at the same time. These are simple little demonstrations of a, a kind of communication between people. We sort of grow out of it or it's drummed out of us as we get older. As to the higher things, I, I think, to be honest with you, you have to become so sick of the world at some point, so sick of it, uh, that, that you're looking for something beyond all of this. You can see plenty evil around you in the world, but you see very little good. You know, on a, on a large scale, that is. There's a lot of good happening on an individual scale, uh, people helping people, that kind of thing. But really, um, evil runs the world, so you have to, as I say, almost uh, retreat from the world for a while to find yourself. I think that's when you get the experiences. Back in a moment after this break. radio broadcasts and uh, you've kind of alluded to the fact that uh, there's been a few people who have you know fought against the powers of you know evil like the elite in the past who have you know really kind of brought people to the fore against against them and uh, you know kind of help conquer evil and I was wondering if you could maybe touch on the subject maybe mention possibly a few people who are maybe not as well known or are well known who have had a big influence against this fight well, there's no doubt uh, you can find, you'll find people often who, like Gandhi, for instance, who did it for India, although Gandhi himself went to Oxford. I often wonder if he was actually helping Britain who wanted to unify the country or if he was actually helping these people as, as a toss-up in the air. What you do have is a history, mainly in the U.S., outside the U.S., I, I, I can't say, because... Europe is too old, the system is too old, it's too perfect, uh, and, and uh, they don't tolerate dissenters. They get rid of them very easily, very quickly over there. But in the U.S., you've had a few presidents who have been uh, bumped off, basically, not always in public view, but um, for doing something against the system. As I say, even, even Jackson had a man pull two pistols on him when he tried to abolish the bank. The, the second American bank, and uh, luckily both of them misfired and didn't go off. But uh, you've had quite a few assassinations there, and it's generally because the people uh, were either so naive they didn't know there was a higher power above them running the whole show, and they thought that really you were president, 
um, or else they, they didn't know what was going on and, and they tried to stop it. So th- these are the few instances, really, th- that you have. Uh, you also have instances, too, of even the early labor union leaders in, in countries like Britain. I don't know if people realize that they were still hanging them uh, up until World War I, publicly executing them, hanging them for, for trying to get uh, unions established. These were not communists. They were trying to get a living wage for the people who were kept in poverty. Um, and these, these, so they basically uh, gave their lives for, for that kind of stuff. Um, so you'll find many instances of this down through history, but the problem is when it comes to the financial system that runs the entire planet, um, we, have, we, have, we, we don't even get near it to do anything about it. It's so multi-layered, so complex. Um, most people don't even know that private bankers run what they think of as, the, as their central banks. Um, and... and as I say, you, how can you fight that kind of thing unless you abolish it altogether and start from scratch? That, that's the only way, literally, you could do anything positive about it. For instance, the service economy was discussed in Britain in the 1980s when they said if Britain goes into a service economy, when, if it unites with Europe, uh, then it's like a dog paddling in a swimming pond until it runs out of steam and eventually drowns because you're producing nothing and all... Um, all money, basically all wealth, comes from the products that you create. A service economy passes it around. Well, North America now is under the same system of a service economy, and that's why it's plummeting now. They don't have the manufacturing for simple things that everyone needs. It's all done in China. This takedown is planned this way, and we have to change the system entirely, but not to the one that they will guide us into. And they do have one ready for us to go into. Well, that's it for tonight. I hear music coming in. So from Hamish and myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. I mean, your God, all your gods go with you.